0: Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Ed Marks with Digital Voices and coming to you from New York City. So if you do hear some interesting sounds in the background, it's just the sounds of a very alive city, which is great considering what we've been through with COVID and especially in New York City being hit so hard. So today I have another friend uh, to to share the mic with me and it's my, my friend, Lana Bardanian, Dr. Bardanian. And I wanna welcome you to Digital Voices.
1: Thank you, thank you, Ed. Thank you for having me.
0: So Lana is currently the chief medical officer and get this, this is so interesting. New York Hotel Trades Council and Hotel Association of New York City and the employee benefits funds and so I had never you know thought about that that was had a healthcare piece of it uh, but we're going to dive into that in just a little bit but first Lana everyone wants wants to know what kind of music you listen to <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is the most you know sensitive question I guess of this um, interview or podcast I like all kind of music any kind of music that has harmony in it and with or without words. And I must confess that there are two types of music that I listen the list, and that is rap music and the country music, but not of any, um, not because it's not a good music, but because maybe I haven't developed yet the good knowledge of it.
0: There you go. That's a, <laughs> that's a, that's I'm a, looking
1: forward to that.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good explanation. Yeah. So we actually met the first time probably around 2015, and it was New York City Health and Hospitals, and we both were serving here, and we were, my team, I think I had an EPIC team, and they were coming to your hospital at the time, was Coney Island, and you were the chair of ambulatory. Yes. And I remember working with you, because not everyone is super excited. Physicians aren't always super excited about doing something like big transformational projects, like, you know, a new electronic health record. But you became our champion and our advocate. And you were so helpful in turning the tide, because like most organizations, change is hard, and people just didn't want to do it. So I really appreciate your leadership.
1: Well, thank you. I think it was a wonderful time. It was an exciting time. Yeah. Our huddles in the end of the day, our little wins, yes, and the corrective course. I think that's what it was so successful, that everybody vested their heart and soul into yeah. this. It wasn't just checking the boxes.
0: Exactly. And, and I know that you then took some other positions, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the other thing I remember, because uh, it meant a lot to me, in 2018, I left New York City Health and Hospitals to, to move on to the Cleveland Clinic. And they had a going away party. And New York City is hard to get around. <laughs> yes. So just going even two miles can be, you know, it's a, a Herculean effort. Uh, but you you came and you came to the going way party and I'll I'll never forget that so thank you for doing that
1: absolutely it was a great party yeah. in Brooklyn
0: yeah on the rooftop that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> great memory so anyway so that's why I'm so glad you're here so the other thing we like to ask all of our guests is are there words that you live by or a mantra or a quote that sort of you know sustains you or gives you inspiration of any sort.
1: You know, it's interesting. I think at different times of life, you are finding words that kind of talk to you or speak to you or your needs of the soul. But I think the, the foundational li- ones of life, freedom and uh, happiness are always ones to kind of go back to kind of center. And recently watching the show, I saw the mantra that this seems like is a very famous Buddhist mantra. And uh, I'm not a religious person, but it really also spoke to me as almost like a calming mantra, and that was, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I live with ease, and I think live with ease is really an important part of it, because sometimes we are surrounded by factors that are beyond our control, but learning to adapt and live with ease, even at those tough times, like we just survived COVID, yeah. right, I think those, that that also kind of spoke a to me. Yeah, no, I, I love that,
0: that's yep. really good. So, Tell us your story. Uh, You can go as far back as you want, but your life and career journey, and obviously you have an accent. So I know everyone's going to want to know, because they're probably already right now trying to figure out where is Lana from originally.
1: Well, you know, a lot of people, if they ever had a friend who is Armenian, they will recognize my last name because all Armenian names end with I-A-N or Y-A-N, so pronunciation is... Jan, kind of, so Bardanian or whatever it, it comes, And that's actually in the tra- traditional understanding is, is similar to Swedish s- uh, son, right? Like Gustav son is a son of Gustav, yes, right? right? So that was that belonging to that clan. Um I, I don't think that means, uh, it's just a surname nowadays. So I, I'm Armenian. I was born and raised in Armenia. Armenia, not, Armenia has a very large diaspora uh, across the world because of unfortunate events of uh, beginning of 20th century. but um, to avoid talking about politics, I was born and raised in Armenia. I went to medical school in Armenia. I went to a um, cardiology fellowship after that and then worked in Armenia as a cardiologist until early 90s when due to a political events and the personal matters, so I had to immigrate to United States. So I usually joke that my life spreads through two centuries and mm-hmm. through, you know, Different systems of socialism and capitalism and I lived in Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere and you know, and then when I came to the United States, I had to go through the rigors of, you know, obtaining medical license, which I did and I actually immigrated to New York initially where I did my training in then it was called New York Hospital of Queens now it's New York Presby Queens. And then um, after doing the year of, as chief resident, I moved to California because I guess I needed to live also in two coasts. So yeah. just to complete that, <laughs> yeah. I also worked as an inpatient physician. I was a CCU attending as a cardiologist in Armenia. And here I suddenly became an outpatient primary care provider in California. So after doing about 10 to 12 years as a primary care physician in UC Davis, and my practice was in Roseville, a lovely place, still considered to be in top three or five places to live in the United States. Um, I kind of felt like my life was not yet ready for a very smooth, you know, autopilot gliding to the final end. And um, in one of the meetings at the American College of Physicians, I met my old colleague from my, he was my uh, residency director, and he's then CMO of Coney Island Hospital, and they corrupted me with this idea that they don't have ambulatory department it's a new thing for american health institution because it, we had departments of medicine traditionally right. surgery OBGYN but not this outpatient medicine which was in a way blossoming because throughout the history of medicine in the united states in the last 30 40 years the most uh, the patients were moved from inpatient to outpatient and we needed better and more sophisticated and more better coordinated efforts to keep these patients out of the hospital. So that was the creation of ambulatory department. So I decided it's time to move back. So I moved back to New York City, the city that never sleeps. Yes. And that was my um, my job at that time. I started creating and created eventually the ambulatory department, which where we met. And then after about five, six years, the we also had a accountable care organization in health and hospitals. And health and hospitals is an amazing organization. As New York City has the largest network of city hospitals. We are by far the largest. So next largest is uh, L.A. County. They have three. We have 11, right? right? If you yeah. remember, we talked about <clears throat> it. Yeah. So about um, in uh, accountable care organization is a... Medicare population and how to manage their care better to cost less, but have a better outcome. So kind of a beginning of a value-based care, healthcare concept. So I became a chief medical officer of that for Health and Hospital. And in 2019, I was kind of, I don't want to say poached, it doesn't sound good, but I was approached with (laughs) the idea to come and lead this organization where I'm currently a chief medical uh, officer. And what excited me about this, and I mentioned that to you before, was that it is opportunity to do a real value-based care because there is a a lump sum of money that is contributed to every unionized worker that works in a hotel industry. And we need to manage their health in the best possible way for the best outcomes and long-term outcomes because our patients stay with us for 10, 15, some of them more than 30 years. And if you you can't cut corners. And it elated me because currently so many physicians die the slow death of thousand cuts when they cannot order this test, they cannot order this medication. Right. And because overall the long term outcome is not in the interest of current insurer, for example. And and also some patients here also patients wanna get better because they only get their benefits when they work so you had this amazing opportunity to make a difference in the best possible way designing the health plan for the patient and really thinking of their health you know comprehensively instead of doing this drive through medicine let me do this quick medication and you will feel better and then what happens tomorrow we don't know
0: right yeah, yeah so it's it's a super interesting model so just for uh, for a little bit more of an explanation so these are the workers that like you visit new york city they're Working in these hotels, right?
1: They are the waiters. They are the cleaning crew that comes and cleans your, you know, rooms. Or they are the, you know, in the in the restaurant. Or they they are the maintenance workers. So not the engineers. they are different right. unions, but a lot of them are this usual people that you see when you walk in the hotel. Who do you see? Receptionist, right. you know, the uh, uh, attendant attending near the elevator or something like
0: that. Right. And so they're getting. So it's carved out in a sense, and they're getting their health care. From your organization. Correct. So you're providing We them, provide right.
1: the health care to them and their dependents. Right. So it's a family kind of a, the whole family. It's a comprehensive health care. And um, we provide their, not just medical care, we provide their dental care, their behavioral health needs. The pharmaceutical benefits are through us. So it is really a comprehensive 360 care. There is nothing else. If they need to visit hospital, obviously it's the hospital team that takes care of them. But we then put our, our head as an insurer to pay for that. Right. And then we look into and say how we could have done better for yeah. this not to happen.
0: Yeah, no, it's I, it's great. It's a, a great perk, certainly for for those workers in that in that union.
1: Absolutely.
0: So I don't want to lose track of the ar- Armenia. I want to go uh, back yes. for a second. So yes. for those. Who don't know can you sort of explain where it is geographically uh, in Europe?
1: So Armenia what we pride is a very small nation. It used to be a much larger footprint in the it's a a very old nation Uh, To say how old we are our alphabet is created in like a third century fourth century We are the first christian nation in the world. We accepted christianity as a state religion. We were the first ones Unfortunately for us, our, our surrounding neighbors are not Christian. So that makes it kind of difficult always to talk about Armenia because there's always a conflict, um, specifically around World War One, That was the ma- major genocide that was, you know, is, is still celebrated, not celebrated, but like commemorated on April 24th, where more than a million Armenians were killed. But then again, it's, um it's the, um, you know, it's uh, located around Caucasus Mountain. The other thing that is, uh, a lot of Armenians are very proud of the Novi's, um Ark is in Ararat Mountain and Ararat Mountain is traditionally an Armenian mountain unfortunately it's now on a Turkish territory right. but it's on you know Armenian stamps and everything else it's a part of like that's Armenian belonging right, right? so it's a uh, we have about three and a half four million people the other thing that was recently I would say not so recently in 1988, we had this a horrible earthquake that happened in Armenia. So a lot of people related to that, and then quite recently, it is uh, unfortunately not even a war between again neighboring Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia, but uh, it's pretty much the Kardashians being Armenians. That's where I get recognized. So yeah. and I say, you know, whatever it works, right. whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. But Armenia is a beautiful country if you like hiking, if you like you know um, eco tourism. Uh, a lot of ancient uh, sites, we have uh, even a Zoroastrian one, you know, from before Christianity, but very old monasteries and churches and a very, the hospitality is a trade and survival skills. I yeah, definitely <laughs>
0: survival skills. Yeah, and if, if, and if my history is correct, Jesus, whether you believe uh, as a historical person or spiritual, um, spoke Armenian.
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yes, the ancient Armenian, and we have this. Uh, even the capital of the city, it's uh, close to three thousand years uh, old. So it's it's an interesting. It it's an interesting language, the like old Arameic or yeah. whatever it was. And then now the current Armenian language, as I said, with the alphabet being so old, and we are a unique branch in a in a language tree. So we don't have an alphabet that is similar to ours. Right. So
0: yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. I, I really. Uh, glad to talk about it. What about medicine in Armenia? So how do you how do you You know, that?
1: I would I would say um, it's an interesting question because I visited Armenia and they asked me to give a talk in my medical school mm-hmm. in my alma mater to a group of physicians that were pursuing a degree in business. So and I thought, well, this is fantastic because Armenians always had this entrepreneurial streak, but they kind of never been taught properly, I guess, on the entrepreneurial part. Because when I was in medical school, and I'm very glad that I did that. At that time it was um it was a circle of 20th century so it was during the socialism so it was a universal healthcare with zero cost to a patient and it is totally different than it is now right so it is two different parts but they are still remnants of social medicine available to you know everyone but there is a, a western type of like well you pay you get this right so um, when I was in the car, and I'll tell you this very funny, I think, story. I was a cardiologist so in CCU, and we had this delegation from the United States, and we were so excited to share, like, and to learn something, you know, and they came and they said, well, what's your mortality from uh, uh, acute MI, uh, myocardial infarction? And we said, oh, it's, you know, it's 8.6%, like, and they're like, there's no way, because ours is 13, and our mm. technology is <laughs> so much better. And when I came to the United States, I understood why, because we didn't have that much technology, but we stood, you know, next to the patient's bedside right. <laughs> all night it. long, <laughs> you know, our nurses, even nurses aid, were, were so well equipped with the bedside medicine mm-hmm. skills that they will understand if the patient started breathing a little faster, we will have a nurse's aide running to you saying, check on a bed seven, it's breathing a little faster. Yeah. So when you have technology, it makes it very standard and helps a lot, but it takes away that soft touch of art of medicine, I think.
0: Right. No, that, that's very interesting. So, diving back into your current role, so it's, it seems like that your previous roles, like with the ACO and even the ambulatory side, have really helped prepare you for your, your
1: job oh, absolutely. today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say, again, My my, I, I'm so grateful for the training that I had in Armenia and then in the United States, right? Because it's like, I feel like I'm such much better accomplished physician because I had the opportunity to do both. And then uh, working in as an inpatient physician and then working as in UC Davis in California, well acquainted with California system, heavily populated by HMO, then moving here and creating ambulatory when you have to kind of you know, work with different chairs and understand the specifics of all that, that really helped them to get the value-based care concept into ACO. That's what drives it. And, and I will say we were the only organization in New York State that get, got shared savings. At that time, was five times. And I was like, I was joking because I was leaving it. That was my last meeting. I said, you know, will we like Michael Jordan next year sewing, so showing <laughs> <Yeah>. sex? <laughs> so, and they did. And they did. And it's amazing that such a difficult organization as HHC and such a difficult city as HHC can come up with shared savings due yeah. to this outreach to patients and making sure they understand the disease process. It prepared me to know what i can do here and right. what we want where we want to go the goal right you know
0: no that, that's that's great and and it, it is really a great attribution to to your leadership and others that if you could do it you know what does the song say if you could make it happen in your city you could <laughs> make it happen anywhere yes
1: yes so
0: what are a couple things that your team's doing today that you're pretty excited about
1: you know, it, um, our, our structure allows us to really innovate and think of things that otherwise would have taken any other organization that has multi-level bureaucracy, would have taken many more months or years when it would have been a moot point to even pursue. So we have a very flat organization. It's very much a, a frontline, uh, you know, teams. And I still see patients. So kind of I feel that, OK, how is it working? It's not working. So let's change it. So if we decide to do a bundle on something that's never been a bundle done, we do that. You know, we did bariatric bundles. We're looking into a a cancer, a breast cancer and reconstruction bundle because it's like there's a certain things that happen. You know, why won't we do this and make it simpler? Mm -hmm. I think the interoperability is another extremely innovative part on our end because while we have health centers where we see patients, we have the usual, you know, uh, divisions or, or presentation of specialties like endocrine or cardiology But a lot of it gets referred out and new york is huge and it has a right. multitude yeah. of services So we're we're not only related to one organization and as you know very well Epic at NYU is different than epic in it's Mount Sinai and true. we are on Cerner <laughs> so having an opportunity to seamlessly transfer information without involving a fax machine or mm-hmm. radiology or we are also a pair, not just a healthcare organization. So a lot of interoperability of different parts of healthcare aimed at seamless uh, delivery of healthcare product to the patient. Yeah. That's what we are looking at. So it's a, it's a lot of in a value-based care, but it's also in an excellence of care that is pertinent and not just, let's say, you know today's you know uh, flavor of the day is, are we going to ask everybody if they smoke? that may take away the time that can be spent in, in a different way, yeah. not to minimize the importance of screening course logging.
0: Right. No, that, that's a good point. Now, Lana, I've known you for a while, but I think our listeners picked up on the fact, given your background and all the different positions that you've held, you're a great leader, you're a great person, a great leader. What might be one or two things you know, on the leadership side um, that might help other people? Do
1: you know, I think being a physician helped me so much. Just like being a doctor, sometimes I'm really grateful for having my daughter who taught me to be a better human being. I think you're much more patient as a parent. <laughs> right? right? Sure. So they, I, I imply my parenting skills, of the respect, embracing mistakes, expecting mistakes to ha- happen. That takes a fear away from your team. Explaining to them that trying something and expecting that that cannot be the right thing. Now, in medicine as of seeing patients, you should minimize that. You need to really do a rigorous like exercise of differential diagnosis. But we are talking about organization. When you want to try and say, how about if we put a checking kiosk there, you shouldn't just say, Oh, what if this, what if that? You should say, let's try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll learn from it. So eliminating fear in a workplace, I think that is the one of the most important things and nurturing everyone to their best self. Yeah. Because there are people that are stuck in clerk position and they really are great in talking to patients. So maybe they should be a patient advocate or problem solver. We uh, just recently, we we're going to start on October 10, we created a 311 desk. So if somebody comes and they don't know where to go. So instead of going and knocking on the administrator's door, who is, might be dealing with the flooding in the electrical room, that <laughs> right. going to a 311, a person who knows organization very well and knows where to navigate, how he promises the patient, I'll get back to you. But that person knows who is the right person to solve this problem in the shortest time. So that's where, and we had this one particular person, we uh, elevated to that position because we realized that he knows organization very well and he's great with patients. And instead of sitting and crunching uh, reports on hospitalization, this is a better place for him. He was so excited. So I think this is what we, the ideal leadership in my view will be. It's a good parent. You want your children to succeed. And sometimes they succeed and they leave organization. And I'm never sad about that. Because I see it as a parent whose child gets married, right? Yeah, and you yeah. just hope that they love them and they care for them, you know. And if they get divorced, they can come back right. to, the, <laughs> to the parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, it is a testament to you being a good parent if they leave to a better position or they grew. You know? Yeah.
0: No, that's a great a- analogy. I've i thought of that before, but not to the extent that you just took it. And it, it, it's spot on. You're, you're okay. really right. I like it a lot. Great. Right. So you mentioned earlier that you were invited back to your med school in Armenia, and you're speaking to these physicians, but mostly on the business side. So now that you've had all these experiences, what, what are one or two, maybe three things that you wish med schools here in the United States taught that they don't today? Because based on your experiences, you know, you've seen gaps probably.
1: You know, I, and I taught medical students and residents throughout my career in in United States, even when I was a chief resident from then on and in California. And I would say it is a very hot topic for me. That's a topic for a separate podcast, because we need to do something, we need to change something the way the medicine is practiced. And it starts from acceptance rules of who do we accept to medical school. Do we accept people that want to be doctors or they want to be they want to have a diploma over that? That's a big difference. Yeah. I see a huge shift towards the latter. They want to do I want to be part-time doctor and do something else. I want to be locum doctors. And to me it's like, okay, you don't want to be responsible for the outcomes of your actions. But if I were to say what I really see in my peers, what they missed, what I what I have is in Armenia we had a history of medicine taught to us. And we have a Museum of Ancient Manuscripts. So if anyone of you, you are ever in Yerevan, which is the capital of Armenia, go to that museum. It's like in the end of the main street there. So, um, and in Museum of Ancient Manuscripts, we have a whole wing uh, of you know, medical manuscripts. So we will sit there and we will like, and it's so humbling. And it is such a trigger to your genetic memory of like nature is smart and we need to be really you know smart about what we try to do. And it was a a founding father of American internal medicine is actually a Canadian, William Osler. And when I will ask American medical students, residents, physicians, do you know who uh, who Osler is? There will be like a blank stare. And I think there is a missing gap just like you know i will give an analogy if you watch a show and i'll always say friends which dates me immediately but still the first episode you kind of have no connection to these people and when it's a last episode you feel like you're losing something because you know the story right, right? in medicine we ask the past history without now knowing the history of medicine what how great it was the polio vaccine or you know not sensational sensationalizing the timeline of it, but really understanding what was before and how did we get to that? Why how was penicillin discovered? And how did we use heparin, which is the on based on heroin, which is from the word for leeches in Latin, because that's where we got it from? And we used to put leeches on people with you know right. apoplexy, right. and we were like, oh yeah, because they suck the blood. Yeah, that that helped. Mm-hmm. You did the bloodletting, but also they left the heparin circulating. So. I think history of medicine is one thing that I would definitely say is missing. And I think it's, um, you know, overall, having a clinical thinking at the bedside instead of this deconstructed medicine that we now teach and say, hey, you know, it's like bringing you a box of different parts and saying it used to be an iPhone or it is an iPhone. It's not. Right. right, it's not yeah. functioning, so seeing the beauty of what the body is and how the nature created the body in a way of how it works, it's a lot of good knowledge of physics and hydraulics, like that. These things help, it's not just memorizing things. So, I think clinical thinking, history of medicine, and overall changing. Do you want to be a doctor?
0: Yeah, no, I <laughs> those are those are really really interesting answers, you know, not once I would have thought of, but it, they make. A tremendous amount of sense. You know, our audience is largely chief digital officers across payers, across providers, life sciences. And as a seasoned physician leader, talking to these uh, digital leaders, uh, any words of advice for working together with, with uh, the clinician community?
1: You know, I, I already mentioned that we have Cerner, and again, no, no, you know, not shading them in any way because we work with Epic, uh, we work with Quadramets some other systems. I would just say that the, definitely there is a definite transition or need for transition of electronic medical records or digital part of any healthcare system to be, it, it is an extremely important part. And uh, when I see my peers, how exhausted they are by working with uh, EMRs. It is because it, they work kind of against them and not with them. And I think uh, the cross-section, one other thing I would say I noticed also, a lot of my colleagues that go into digital health and become CMIOs, they are mindset differently. They are very good in understanding the computer part, but they are usually not the, that old professor type doctor that you want to see when you are sick, right? right? Got it. So having an input from both is very important. Because yes, I'm a problem solver, I'll solve your problem, but I need to know what your problem is as a practicing physician. Because it's not what, you know, it's, it's, it's knowing how to use these tools to support supplement, augment the outcome, and not just creating set of tools saying, but this is, you know, now instead of, I remember, I'll tell you the first EMR epic in UC Davis when they said, here's the training on how to refill a prescription. It's easy nine clicks. And I said exactly. it was easy one, one signature before. Right. So that's yes. really not a selling point. <laughs> and I think there was a very, we have been almost 20 years into uh, going into electronic medical systems being better and better. I think um, the one thing that I would say, don't just talk to CMIOs, talk to regular frontline mm. people and ask them, what can what is it that will make your life easier? Yeah. And that's what we need to concentrate. That might not be the number one problem for um, the whole institution or the most expensive problem, but when we have uh, happier providers, you have a better outcome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that's very sage sage advice. I'm gonna sneak in one last more personal sure. question, and then we'll wrap up. But we are looking outside the window at, at uh, you know 42nd Street and and all the theater so what's your favorite show ever and then what what if someone were coming to visit now what would you recommend they see
1: well i have to admit that my favorite shows are in metropolitan opera okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> not in a broadway but in a broadway i love the theater you know so uh, and and i think it doesn't matter what show it is i recently went to a show that actually unfortunately closed which was really unfortunate the level of uh, the level of professionalism mm-hmm. of Broadway actors yeah. and the level of, doesn't matter what it is, it is done on a level that I wish every one of us, even in medical profession, will give it all every time, night after night. Yeah. And it, uh, my hat is off. But I would say that um, the shows come and go and it's it's amazing to see that variety. And I think that what makes you, despite all the craziness <laughs> in New York, you feel alive in New York.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's again, Lonnie's just full of uh, bringing out, uh, you know, sage wisdom in some of your answers, but yeah. you're right. Like, when you go to a Broadway show, they've done, they're have they doing that show, you know, I don't know the exact amount of times, but probably seven or eight per week. They take one day off. Yeah,
1: yeah. even sometimes they've met and it's like on yes. Wednesdays, now they added another day, so.
0: But when you're there,
1: yeah. it is
0: like they do, doing it the first, the best time
1: first time they are doing it only for you yes, that's exactly. that feeling, yeah. right? so
0: that's that's a good way that we all need to carry ourselves yes. so so we covered tons of stuff from <laughs> European geography <laughs> uh, to Broadway uh, obviously your work here uh, some of the previous work at health and hospitals is there anything that you want to double down on that we may have talked about or something we missed I, I want to give you the last word
1: you know, I'm very passionate about medicine, and I think one of uh, one of the things that I and, and maybe that's another thing that we should teach in medical school is the profession. That medicine is a profession of servitude, and a lot of people miss that. You know, we serve people. We we are like in the military. We sign up to do this. We cannot say, you know, what I I don't feel like doing this. Like I'll do it next visit because, you know, my approach to this is every patient is somebody's child, and that mother may be dead for last 90 years entrusted this patient's life to you so I think the only double down will be we do need to pay more uh, soulful attention to medicine instead of just numbers and outcomes and such but due to the digital transformation it can be better yes we can't turn back, you know, used to, I used to say this analogy to doctors who complain about DMR that, but you don't use your, you know, let's say TV from 90s, right? right. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Well, what a, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for being my Thank guest, you. Lana. It's, it's,
1: it's my, my honor to be here. It's such a pleasure to be here. Tonight.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. It may, I have all sorts of great memories and, you know, may, and I was glad when, I, was in, I always try to be in the moment. So I was in the moment back then. So, cause I knew it wouldn't last forever. But when I get back with colleagues like yourself, uh, it just reminds me how special of the time that was. Thank so, you. thank you again. So that wraps up Digital Voices. We'll talk to you at our next drop. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.